Welcome to the Republic of the Rio Grande. Episode 17, Y Todo Para Que. Because you can't do a podcast about Zapata, Texas without an allusion to an Intocable song. I'm Brandon Seal. The 20th century Mexican historical canon will tell you that the Republic of the Rio Grande never existed. And they lead off with a pretty strong argument. Mexicans don't call the Rio Grande the Rio Grande. They call it the Rio Bravo. If anything, it should be the Republic of the Rio Bravo, shouldn't it? The great Mexican historian Josefina Vasquez, and I'm not saying that sarcastically, by the way, she's phenomenal, wrote a paper on the subject called The Supposed Republic of the Rio Grande, in which she makes the claim that, quote, this republic was mentioned only once in documents of the period, and this in a centralist newspaper that was reprinting an article from a Texas newspaper, end quote. The great Nuevo Laredo historian, Manuel Ceballos Ramirez, goes further, arguing that the history of the Republic of the Rio Grande was, quote-unquote, invented in order to suggest a pre-existent tejanidad, or Texanness of the Mexican citizens of the region as, quote, justification for Texan and North American expansionism, end quote. But something clearly was going on between 1838 and 1840 in the Rio Grande Vias. Something that men were willing to fight and die for. Maybe that something wasn't specifically called the Republic of the Rio Grande, but as early as November 13th, 1839, you can find mention in a Veracruz newspaper of the, quote, New Republic of North Mexico, end quote. You can find the same phrase in a letter on December 7th, 1839. Then, as well, on January 17th, 1840, you can find a disparaging reference in a centralist Matamoros newspaper to Canales's quote, República Norte Mexicana, end quote. By March 3, 1840, a month or so after the convention at Casablanca, we get our first mention in English of the, quote, establishment of the Republic of the Rio Grande, end quote. Later that same year, Antonio Canales himself signed a debt instrument in his capacity as a representative of the, quote, government of Rio Grande, end quote. And in another letter, around the same time, he makes reference to the, quote, president of the provisional government of the free states of the Mexican Republic, end quote. So to say that there was never a Republic of the Rio Grande is a little bit of a semantic argument, but it may even still be a losing argument at that. But it's not a surprise, because Mexican historiography has always been dominated by the center, in much the same way that the Mexican nation is. The nation itself takes its name from the center, and it's often unclear even to Mexicans whether they're talking about Mexico City or the Republic of Mexico at large when they refer to Mexico. For this and many other reasons, northern frontier Mexicans have always felt themselves to be a bit of a breed apart, a neglected if not forgotten sibling of the states in the center. This isn't just because people in Mexico City still haven't even heard of Topo Chico mineral water Seriously, walk into a restaurant in Mexico City and order Topo Chico, and the waiter will look at you and try and figure out why you're asking him for a tiny mammal. No, the causes are more deep-rooted, and it's because the concerns of the northern frontier have almost always been forced to take a back seat to the projects of the Mexican center. In many ways, the great Federalist-Centralist struggle in 19th century Mexico was a proxy for this culture war between northern and central Mexicans the northern provincials fighting for regional autonomy and low tariffs, the central metropolitans claiming a monopoly on sovereignty and taxation. Actually, that same Nuevo Laredo historian that I mentioned a moment ago 
has argued pretty persuasively that the Mexican Revolution of 1910 was actually just another northeastern federalisty Mexican revolt set off by a man from Coahuila in the name of long-festering regional frustrations with an autocratic centralist government in Mexico City and launching his movement from reliable old federalist bases like San Antonio and Laredo. And here's an even more recent data point. In December of 2020, fed up with the highly centralizing impulses of the current Mexican presidential administration, 10 of Mexico's governors, principally from the northern states, formed an alliance to oppose the president's economic policies. Do you know what they called themselves? The Federalist Alliance. La Alianza Federalista. And do you know which three states organized this alliance? If you said Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas, then you've been paying attention. This fight for autonomy by the northeastern states of the Mexican Republic is in some ways as old as the Mexican Republic itself, which is why I'm inclined to disagree when Mexican historians dismiss the supposed Republic of the Rio Grande as something quote-unquote invented. But in part, these Mexican historians are countering a similarly misguided argument from the Anglo tradition. It's the idea that you see sometimes in old Texas histories that these Rio Grande and Northeastern Mexican Federalists were fighting for a Texan-inspired Anglo-American form of independence. That doesn't seem to be the case, as we've seen throughout this series. No, these Northeastern Mexican Federalists seem to have something very different in mind. If I can generalize for a second from my own experience, I guess I grew up with the idea of independence, or at least of American independence, as something like a fresh start. Quote, Keep ancient lands, your storied pomp. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, end quote. The Statue of Liberty cries out. The idea being that America itself represents a cutting off of everything that came before, a leaving behind of the corruption of European monarchs, the wickedness of foreign despots, the tragedies of failed states. Indeed, the idea I have is that the Anglo-American ideal of independence expects and sort of demands that we leave behind our individual pasts in order to be a part of a shared future. But the Mexican tradition views the issue a little differently. I hope you'll recall here the Hispanic legal tradition that we've talked about throughout this series, which was built on self-government at the level of the town, of the pueblos, which were bound to other pueblos through history, culture, faith, and sometimes, but not always, through a shared sovereign. In a succession crisis under this system, for example, your town and my town might disagree on who the king should be, and we can govern ourselves in the meantime just fine. Just don't think that your town gets to govern my town if your king wins. No, the king or the sovereign is somehow supposed to be above all of that. But of course, what does this mean, as in the case of Mexico in 1821 and especially 1824, when there no longer is a king? Well, it doesn't mean that I'm all of a sudden going to deny my historical and cultural ties with other parts of Spanish North America, but it does mean that I will fight to the death anyone in Spanish North America who tries to lay a claim of sovereignty over me. I think, anyway, that this is what Bernardo Gutierrez de Lara and others had in mind back in 1813 when they declared Texas, quote, free and independent, end quote, while also declaring it, quote, inviolably joined, end quote, to the Mexican Republic. In Gutierrez de Lara's mind, there's no inconsistency with these two ideas. Texas was, and forever would be, politically free and independent of any monarch or autocrat trying to exercise a claim over her. 
But that didn't mean she was going to suddenly be disconnected from the rest of Spanish North America, with which it shared centuries of history and culture. Gutierrez de Lara's enterprise died on the vine, of course, so in his case it's more of an academic exercise. But for me, all of this really places the Texas Revolution of 1835-36 in a new and slightly tragic light, at least with respect to the Tejano participants in that revolt, who, recall, outnumbered Anglos as a percentage of their population in participating in the Texas Revolution of 1835-36. Do you recall the scene that I opened this season with in the trailer? It's the first day of the siege of the Alamo. Juan Seguin's helping Jim Bowie compose a letter to Santa Ana. Seguin signs off the letter with the customary Dios y Federación, God and Federation, a declaration of his commitment to the Mexican Federalist Constitution of 1824. Then Bowie scratches out the word Federación and writes instead, Texas, God and Texas. As I mentioned in the trailer to this season, I had always previously understood this moment to be the great moment where Bowie, Seguin, and the others realized that they were actually fighting for an independent Texas. With the benefit of hindsight, anyway, that's what it seemed like. But also with the benefit of hindsight, and the benefit of everything we've studied this season, you've got to wonder if maybe Jim Bowie and Juan Seguin had very different things in mind when they spoke of independence. In fact, there's no greater exemplar of this ambiguity as to what independence meant in Texas in 1835-36 than the trajectory of José María Carvajal, the fiery little San Antonian who we followed as a supporting character throughout this season. In 1835, Carvajal was one of the most radical opponents of Santa Ana's government, risking and losing most of his personal fortune attempting to arm the early stages of the Texas Revolution. But when he was elected to the Independence Convention at Washington-on-the-Brazos in February of 1836, he declined to attend, sensing that Tejanos, like him, had lost control of their own movement. Juan Seguin persisted longer, becoming the great Tejano hero of the Texas Revolution, but then becoming, within the decade, the most tragic proof that, in 1842 anyway, it wasn't possible to be culturally Tejano and politically Texian. That same year, 1842, would find José Antonio Navarro at the start of a three-year stay in a Mexican prison for his support of the Republic of Texas. And in 1845, Texas's vote to annex itself to the United States was the last straw for Francisco Antonio Ruiz, son of the great Tejano patriot José Francisco Ruiz. Francisco Antonio considered annexation such a betrayal of the dream of Texan independence that he and his father had fought for for three decades that he preferred to go off and live with the Comanches than live under the rule of some new authority located even further away culturally than Mexico City or Austin ever had been. I still think that most public discussion around the Texas Revolution of 1835 and 36 today are mostly rehashings of centuries-old Anglo-American historical arguments overlaying onto a single geographic segment of the state at the expense of the viewpoints of the men and women who had been living in Texas for much longer and who I think might more rightly make an argument as to having precipitated the events of 1835-36. I'm referring, of course, to Tejanos. But when we shift the focus to Tejanos, we also have to acknowledge that those same Tejanos were eventually as disappointed by the results of the Texas Revolution as they had been with the results of the War of Mexican Independence. And this story of the Republic of the Rio Grande, I think, helps us understand why. 
What I've come to believe that Tejanos wanted in 1813, in 1836, and in the Rio Grande in 1840 was autonomy within their tradition, not independence from tradition. 1821 had given them tradition without autonomy. 1836, by contrast, had given them independence without tradition. When actually what they had wanted all along was their freedom and their history, not just one or the other. And actually, Lorenzo de Zavala, the first vice president of Texas, told us as much in the first season of this podcast when he articulated his vision for Texas as, quote, a combined regimen of the American system and the Spanish customs and traditions, end quote. Autonomy, again, within a tradition, not independence from all tradition. Which, as I say it out loud, might be the most Texan idea that we've touched upon yet in this series, as I think it captures Texans continuing in dual obsession with their freedom on the one hand and their history or their tradition on the other. Or at least I think it captures it far better than the American fascination with fresh starts and generational reimaginings of the past. In 1858, 18 years after Antonio Zapata's execution, a new county was formed in Texas along the Rio Grande. It was organized largely due to the efforts of an English stock trader and merchant named Henry Redmond, who had been trading in the region since the time when Antonio Zapata reigned supreme. Redmond had actually married a girl from Guerrero across the river, Zapata's hometown, which means that he certainly knew the legend of Zapata, if not the man himself. When Redmond organized the county, where Antonio Zapata had once owned almost 20,000 acres, there was no doubt in his mind as to who he should name it after. Thus, Zapata County was formed. The only county in Texas named for an African American, as far as I know, and so named in 1858, when slavery was still legal in the state. Fittingly, the little Carrizo Indian village sitting across from Guerrero became the county seat of Zapata County. And eventually, they renamed it too, for the man that the Carrizo Comecrudo tribe still claims as one of their own, Zapata. Just as Guerrero Tamaulipas had always been a hotbed of Mexican revolutionary fervor, Zapata County, Texas has always been a supremely uncategorizable place. During the U.S. Civil War, it leaned decidedly unionist against the Confederate state government. From 1896 to 1910, it was a conspicuously Republican county in a single-party Democratic state. Actually, during that time, one of the local political bosses was none other than the son of José Bernardo Gutiérrez de Lara. And the county judge at that same time was, incidentally, the son of José Antonio Navarro. It was like a last holdout for all of these Mexican Federalists. The Kingdom of Zapata, they came to call it, for its insularity and peculiarity. And as proof of the county's continuing uncategorizability, in 2016, Hillary Clinton won Zapata County by 33 percentage points. But in 2020, Trump won it by five points, marking a 38-point swing, the second largest single-county swing in the nation behind only neighboring Starr County. Go figure. Political systems abhor the uncategorizable, however. And so when in the 1940s the United States and Mexican governments got together and planned a dam for the lower Rio Grande Valley, perhaps it wasn't an accident that the towns that they flooded to make that reservoir were those of old revolutionary Guerrero, Tamaulipas, and oddball Zapata, Texas. 
In an incredibly odd coincidence, some of the construction crews building Falcon Dam, as it came to be called, were actually Lipan Apaches, recruited from a reservation in New Mexico, descendants of the men and women who had alternately traded with and menaced the Rio Grande Villas for so long. In 1953, impoundment behind the dam began. Old Guerrero and Old Zapata disappeared under the waters of Lake Falcon. By 1954, all that was visible above the waterline was the cupola of Guerrero's red sandstone church, the church where young Antonio Zapata had been baptized, facing the plaza where Zapata's severed head had later been displayed. Antonio Zapata has endured as a hero of the lower Rio Grande Valley and of Texas history buffs in general. True, it's anachronistic to acclaim Zapata a Texan, as his biographer J.J. Gallegos points out, quote, Born a subject of the Spanish crown, Zapata died a Mexican, end quote. Yet so too did every defender of the Alamo, in theory at least. And the truth is that Zapata will probably never get his due in the Mexican centralizing canon, because he was such an unrepentant provincial, a proud and independent borderlander. But every Texan knows that Texan identity is most truly and continuously reborn on the border, on the frontera, on the frontier. And Antonio Zapata represents the paradigmatic frontiersman. Even 19th century Anglo-Texans recognized in Zapata's desire for autonomy within a tradition something that they could identify with, even if they had no cultural claim to that tradition themselves. Which, quite frankly, I can recognize too. It's no different than how I, as a mere second-generation Texan, can find so much meaning in the history of a place that my people had nothing to do with shaping. Like many Texans, my folks didn't come here for a fresh start. We came here to be a part of something that started a long time ago. Well, that concludes our fourth season on the Republic of the Rio Grande. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love it if you tell your friends about it or share it on social media. But even better, if you have ideas or topics that you'd like to hear about in future seasons, leave reviews for me on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts and let me know your suggestions. I'm considering a couple different options for next season. The Lipan Apaches, the settlement of El Paso, Texas and Paso del Norte and a bunch of others. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you and thank you again. In February of 2022, We'll be conducting almost a month's worth of fieldwork to uncover archaeological evidence for the location of the Battle of Medina, the largest battle in Texas history. If you want to learn more about the battle, go back and listen to season two of this series. If you want to learn more about our search and our partnership with the 501c3 American Veterans Archaeological Recovery Project, go to www.brandonseal.com. Editing for this episode was provided by Susana Canseco. The portrait of Antonio Zapata that serves as the cover art for this season was created by artist Matt Tumlinson. Check him out at Matt underscore Tumlinson on Instagram. Sound engineering for this episode was performed by Stephen Bennett, who also arranged and performed the theme music. The theme music was actually written, however, by Mercurio Martinez, a Zapata County rancher, county treasurer, school principal, and descendant of one of Escandon's founding families. Martinez was the co-author of the first history of Zapata County, which he titled The Kingdom of Zapata. And in his spare time, he penned corridos. Well, I found one of his corridos in his collected papers at Texas A&M's Cushing Library. And in that corrido, Martinez had written a melody 
that he had intended for his Corrido de la Presa, the story of the construction of Lake Falcón and of his role in preserving what he could of the communities later lost to the lake. I love that we've been able to bring back to life this melody here, and I thank Stephen for it. You can check out Stephen's work at Noso Media. That's N-O-S-O media.com. I want to call out here for recognition the work of Juan Jose Gallegos. A retired NASA engineer, Gallegos went back to get a master's in history from the University of Houston and produced an incredible thesis dedicated to the life of Antonio Zapata, which in part inspired this season. Thanks as well to Professor Stan Green at Texas A&M University in Laredo. Professor Green actually has a book coming out soon about these events and others, currently titled Las Vías del Norte, a history from 1748 to 1821. Definitely don't miss the Museum of the Republic of the Rio Grande in downtown Laredo if you're ever there. They have brand new exhibits that they've just opened telling more of the story that we're recounting here. And if you're interested in the history or genealogy of the Vías del Norte, check out Moises de la Garza's website, lasviasdelnorte.com. Thanks additionally to Cesarino Hosa, my touring buddy for these old towns in Mexico, and descendant himself of some of the first founders of the Lower Rio Grande. And thank you to Javier Cervantes with the Tatpilan Coahuiltecan Nation and Juan Mancias with the Carrizo Comecrudo Nation for their guidance too. For more information generally, check out our website at www.brandonseal.com. <laughs>